My name is Ware Harmon. I'm the executive director of Town Hall Seattle. This is, um, this is an emotional night for a lot of reasons. It's uh, the next to last event of our year inside out, and I can't think of a better way to finish this incredibly exciting year than with our second, our back-to-back -back night with Michael Bennett, tonight in conversation with Jesse Hagopian. The event is part of our civic series, which is uh, here courtesy the support of the Wincote Foundation Northwest, the Caffin Foundation, the True Brown Foundation, Boeing, the Real Networks Foundation, and KUOW. Together they make Town Hall possible, and especially our, our political programs, and they deserve our gratitude, so I'll extend it to them. So, let's start with the obvious. Michael Bennett is a Super Bowl champion. Yes, he is, damn right. Pro Bowl MVP, three-time Pro Bowler, two-time NFC champion, and uh, shoot, I didn't write it down, um, was awarded um, uh, King County NAACP. Michael will tell you when he takes the stage, and I've just let him down. Also received a citizenship uh, service award from the King County NAACP, which frankly, I believe is as meaningful to him as all of the accolades he receives on the football field, but that's another matter. He's gained international recognition for his public support of the Black Lives Matter movement, women's rights, other activist and social justice causes. In 2017, he was named one of the 100 most influential African Americans by The Root, was the Seahawks nominee for the NFL's Walter Payton Man of the Year Award, was honored along with his brother Martellus with a BET Shine a Light Award. Uh, Bennett donates all of his endorsement money and the proceeds from jersey sales to health and education projects for poor and underserved youth and minority communities. And... A long sentence. And recently expanded his reach globally to support STEM programs in Africa. Um, he's in conversation tonight with Jesse Hagopian, who's a longtime friend of Town Hall. Uh, he teaches ethnic studies and is the co-advisor to the Black Student Union at Garfield High. He's an editor, that's right, Garfield in the house. He's an editor for the social justice periodical Rethinking Schools, the co-editor of the just-released book Teaching for Black Lives, and the editor of the book, all right, More Than a Score, The New Uprising Against High-Stakes Testing. In 2015, Jesse received Seattle's King County NAACP Service Award, that's what it was, and was named an Education Fellow to the Progressive Magazine, as well as the Cultural Freedom Fellow for the Lannan, Lannan Foundation for his nationally recognized work in promoting critical thinking and opposing high-stakes testing. Michael's book, Things That Make White People Uncomfortable, is the subject of tonight's talk. It was also the subject of last night's talk with journalist Art Thiel, which, this is true, marks the first time in almost 20 years of this organization that we've hosted a speaker on back-to-back -back nights. It's a big deal for us, and it's a sincere pleasure uh, to almost close out this season at Town Hall by welcoming Jesse Hagopian and Michael Bennett. Hey, happy Juneteenth to you, Michael. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And, and happy Juneteenth to everyone here. And uh, 
happy Juneteenth to those who are live streaming on, on Facebook. And um, there's a lot of white people here. Um, <laughs> I don't know if... I don't know if uh, let me get a glass of water on that. I don't know if Town Hall gave you the most uncomfortable seat, just in keeping with the, the theme of tonight. Um, a glass of water? Yeah, I'll have a glass of water. Thank you, sir. Um, man, it's so good to be here with you, especially after all the nonsense that you had to go through and that we had to postpone the, the first one. But to yeah. be here right now, after all the work you put in on this book is, is really special. I'm, I'm really excited to be here with you tonight. Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited, too, to be able to come back to, like, basically, like, my second home because Seattle is a lot, where a lot of stuff happened for me and where, you know, I was able to get, have a child, you know, build my foundation and meet a lot of people and do a lot of work in this city. So to be here right now is just everything, and I just, I'm very humble, I'm, I'm grateful, and I'm just honored to be able to have this many people show up to a book event. Usually people show up to jerseys and when you sign in jerseys, but to people to respect you as an intellectual and to be able to come and um, share your story with them is uh, super unique. No doubt. Well, um, man, this city's gonna miss you after all your identity is, is wrapped up in this city. And we're, really, we're gonna miss the sack dance. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm not, I never, I'm not leaving this city like for, that's just the crazy thing about sports is like we said this, we talked about this before. It's like they can trade you from a city for a sports, but they can't trade you for being a part of the city. See me, I'm a part of the city because my foundation and everything I do for the community is still going on regardless if I'm here or not. I still come back and I still do all the stuff that I promised that I said I was going to do. There's so many people that I've made promises to that I got to keep up with. No doubt. And I think I looked at the schedule, and uh, I don't think you play the Seahawks this no, year. No, Russell Wilson's lucky. Oh, he got lucky. Rashad Penny, <laughs> Paul Allen, Pete Carroll. Oh, I'm not going to sleep for I sleep every day, eat perfect every night to play the Seahawks. Right. <laughs> Bobby, you know, you know, you know, Bobby. I'm, I go. <laughs> right on. Um, so you have a chapter in the book called The Brotherhood. Yeah. That, that really like looks at the unique locker room that is the Seattle Seahawks, or at least was. Yeah. And, um, you know, for me, like I really got into the Seahawks first when, when Marshawn Lynch kind of claimed his humanity and refused to just answer all these questions the yeah. media wanted. And then when I saw you claim your humanity by answering the questions, but on your own terms, like saying like when Marshawn did Beast Mode 2.0, like yeah, yeah, yeah. The, what what'd you say? Like the greatest run since the Underground Railroad? Yeah. It was. That's what, that's what drew me in, made me want to be a Seahawks fan. Like, talk about these guys I, in the locker room. I think you, it's not very often that you're able to create a family atmosphere. I think for the Seahawks, the people that I play with, whether it was Bobby or KJ or Richard, um, Earl, or Cam, or Cliff, who all these people are like brothers to me, you know, the first thing you ask them is not how you're feeling, it's like, how's your family doing, you know, because we were connected on a, a spiritual level, and so we knew what the other was doing at all times, because we spent so much time together, we would talk, and we would have real conversation, we never ever talked about sports, you know, Bobby would come to my locker, like, what you reading, and then I'd throw it to him, and then we would talk about it, or he'll ask me a question, and I'll ask him a question, or Cliff, it was just, we just had like a real family atmosphere, so it was like, every time we took the field, we knew that 
the person next to us, they was playing for the person next to them. And it wasn't about, they were ever playing about themselves. It was like, if Bobby wanted me to hold a gap for him, I would do it because I knew that he wanted me to do it. And I felt like if you had people on your team that made you feel like that, it was easy to go on the field like that. And I think the brotherhood that we share, we also took it from the field into the community. I mean, you go to a lot of teams, and my brother, he always used to be jealous of our team because he used to say, man, I've never been around a team that all you guys are, are always hanging out. You know, there's You're guys. about Martellus. Yeah, my brother Martellus, he's like, man, I couldn't wait to get on a team like that. And, um, and that's how our team was. We took it from the field into the community, and we would do all types of works together. And whoever called and was like, hey, can you show up? We would be there on time and make sure that we were able to lend a help, to help, lend a help a hand. And I think that's what made us a unique team. And I think the city of Seattle will never, ever see something like that again because that's like a once-in-a-lifetime type of opportunity where we were so selfless that we never talked about ourselves. We always talked about the guy next to us. And that's why we forever be brothers and beyond the sports, you know, beyond the the wins. It's about, man, how you doing? How you feeling? What you been up to? Texting out of nowhere and just be like, hey, hey, you the best I ever played with. Just to remind them, like, we didn't take any moment for granted. No doubt. No doubt. That's beautiful, man. We could feel it in this city, too. Yeah. Um, Besides the the brotherhood in the locker room, I mean, you talk a lot in the book about your your actual family, and you're pretty raw um, and open about about that. And I remember Dave and I went to your house to do some of the early talks about the book and we were talking about your mom yeah and it was like wasn't long after you had just reconnected with her yeah no but that was a really interesting moment too I know usually I get choked up about it but I said no I'm not getting choked up about it tonight I'm gonna talk through it but um you know that was a really interesting um time though because it was four men in there crying when we were like going over to edit and we were just all connected because you guys are my friends so you knew the pain that I was sharing and what and how I was like man I don't know if I really want to be that open to people and you you know guys and everybody was just saying like just be vulnerable I think you know to be able to be vulnerable and to be able to forgive somebody for something that you feel like they wronged you is is a hard thing to do but once you do it it just it just frees you you know I'm saying you kind of just don't hold on to the anger and the pain and there you have to find a way to find empathy and compassion and for me that was like a true journey you know to be able to forgive my mother and build up that relationship because honestly I honestly felt that if I didn't forgive my mother I could never love my wife to the maximum of my ability I couldn't be the greatest father I could possibly be if I couldn't like forgive my mom No, I mean, we were in that room all, you had us all sobbing. <laughs> oh, man, I know, but, but that's the truth, you know, it's like, you know, for an athlete, you know, you built on Bravo, the Bravo and, and the, you know, uh, how you come up and how strong you are and how you are able to play through certain things, but you never ever share with kids the, the ability to be vulnerable. And I think that's what I wanted to share with kids through this book is to be able to be very vulnerable and be real with them and let them know, like, well, if you're dealing with something and you're dealing with something that's um, bothering you to be able to let go, I think a lot of players, they deal with depression because we have no outlets. We have no way to be able to cry. We almost like the military because we can't, we're never able to get off. We always have to play through injuries and nobody ever cares about how you feel. And so for us, 
as a player, we want to find those ways to have those outlets so we don't have these, you know, suicidal thoughts or these thoughts where we abusing our wives or not being a father that we could possibly be. Because a lot of players, they deal with the family issues, but nobody's there to talk to them. And I think a lot of coaches don't have that outlet. I think the Seahawks are very rare in that because we're the only team that has a, a team psychiatrist for people to be able to talk through traumatic issues that happen to them. Because we all deal with traumatic issues and all of us are masked up and we try not to let anybody in to our true circle or our true feelings because nobody ever wants to see and be seen as weak, you know, but vulnerability is not a, it's not a weakness, it's a strength. It's the, it's the ability to be able to open up and share the truth of how you're really feeling. No, man, I just, that's the power of this book, that you are vulnerable in it and that, and the fact that you allow me to be vulnerable that way, like that's some, a lesson that I'll take with me forever, you know, that, that it's okay, you know, that we can have emotions. Yeah, we, we have to have emotions. I think not having emotions is what allow things to happen like they do now, to be, to not have empathy, not to have compassion. That's why we, we fight about the border issues. When we, as human beings, we should have empathy and compassion for somebody losing their child. We all have children, and to think of your mind to be thinking that, you know, a mother is a detached from the child that they, that they birthed is a hard thing to swallow. And I think those things and being able to be vulnerable, things like that won't happen. And I think those are the things that we gotta be connected to. You know, you look at police brutality, when we're looking at somebody, you know, you stop and you gotta see them for a human. And I think not being vulnerable and not having empathy and not having compassion has brought us into a world that is, that is scary sometimes. And I think the ability to be able to talk about that and have men, especially men, to connect to their feelings is something that we really have to move forward in as a, in a society. No doubt, no doubt, thank you. And go, going on that, um, you also have a whole chapter in the book on feminism and why you're a feminist um, and the, the lessons you've learned from your wife and, and your three daughters and, and a, another whole chapter on intersectionality, right? What, tell, talk about those chapters, why they're important to you. You know, like for me, like, you know, I'm like I was saying yesterday and all the time is like, Obviously, I'm an athlete and I'm, I'm a famous person, so I get all the credit a lot of the times, but my wife, which is here right there, stand up. Can she get a round of applause? Because she's just as equal to me when it comes to all this stuff. So for me, like, watching her go through her journeys and her struggles and what she grows to and watching her grow up as a, uh, as a woman and a person in the community who builds and does things for people, it's, it's an emotional thing. So for me, I'm tired to that, you know? And for my wife, that's, that's, that's everything. So for my kids, it's the same thing. I share those messages with them to let them know, like, shit, I love It's them, all right. You know? It's all right, man. Yep. Shit. I feel, man. Your no, wife's an amazing person. I've she learned is. a lot. I found out yesterday some about her background in organizing yeah. and activism, and I've, I've realized where you get it. Nah, for real, like, she's so strong, and, like, there's a lot of women who are super strong. If you look at the civil rights movement or any other movement, Harriet Tubman was the person who was going back and, and risking her life, you know, and Angela Davis, whoever it was, there's always been women who have always stood up, you know. You know, Katrina's right here. She's right here every day fighting for her cousin. Um, Charlene allows, and she's over there every day fighting for herself. And uh, she's my friend, and, and to talk, 
and to talk to her when she's a mother and she's out there risking every day because what she believes in, it gives me power to know that, you know, women are just as equal to men when it comes to everything. And it's not just about because, like, just because we have a penis or something like that. It makes us better. No, it just makes us, it just makes us different. But at the same time, they're human beings and they deserve to have respect. You know, when I think about Me Too movement, I think about my daughter. I try to put myself in those situations and how it would feel as a father to think that my daughter was, you know, going through something like that and not being able to have a voice. And she's being victimized because people don't see her as an equal human being. And those are the things that why I feel like it's important for men to be feminists because we have to be able to speak on issues right. pertaining to women or are they going to lose their voice? And who wants their mother to lose their voice? Who wants their wife to lose their voice? Who wants their daughter to lose their voice? We can't have that happen because, you know, there comes a point where silence becomes dishonesty and we have to make sure that we're never silent about issues that we believe in. No doubt. Thank you. Man, that's, that's why we're friends right there, man. Um, in that chapter on intersectionality, I want to I wanna just ask one more question about, because, man, um, you talk about an issue in there about Palestine that I want to hit on for a second, because I, I called you up on the phone. Yeah. Um, it was only like two weeks after we met. Yeah. And this was like the scare, scaredest I've ever been on a phone call. <laughs> Like, probably since eighth grade, and yeah. I asked a girl out. And what'd the girl say? She said, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, shit. Shit, wasn't that scary? So I called I call you up, and I was like, because I just found out you were scheduled to go to Israel yeah. on a state-sponsored trip to play in front of Trump and Netanyahu to show this wonderful um, collaboration between the two. And I was, I was like... Man, I haven't told you this, but I was, I was pretty scared because I was like, this, I'm going to tell this guy not to go. A free like trip, my hero. first class. Yeah, free trip. First class, all the food we can eat. Nah, that was... Right. And it's like, was it like next week? I feel, I feel like the Matrix when that guy took that steak and he, then he, we got unplugged. Right. <laughs> but I didn't do it. Oh, man. So I was just like, um, raised some issues and I was amazed by how open you were immediately to yeah. like wanting to learn more. No, Talk for me, that. for me, that was a hard issue because it was one of those things that, you know, it's polarizing, it's a polarizing conversation about who's right or who's wrong about that situation. And at the end of the day, people are dying every single day. And that's what I connect with. I connect with the bodies and the empathy and the families. And for me, it was, that was an easy choice to be able to not go because I understand the connection between all people, all oppressed people, the people in Haiti, Native American issues, the women issues, transgender issues, every type of issue is connected on every single level. And for you to really be a global human being or a global citizen and you call yourself a, a true, you know, a true patriot for people, then you have to understand every single issue and you can't pick and choose which ones matter because at the end of the day, they all matter. Every time people always scream like, you know, all lives matter, but not when it comes to certain situations, you know, you know, when you scream all lives matter, then you got to feel the pain when you see Charlene Lau's kids crying for their mother. You got to feel the pain when you see Michael Brown's mother crying for her lost son. You got to feel the pain with Timmy Rice and her family, Sandra Bland, who these people are losing their families. And when you watch TV, you see the bombs hitting Gaza. You got to feel the pain for people. And I think when you look at the Native American issues, you feel the pain for the people. Or I look at brown people, Spanish people looking at the edge and being pulled from their families. That brings, that brings a certain amount of... Um, 
you know, pain to my heart, you know, and it's got to be able to speak on those issues because those people matter. Those people, they have a voice. And when we're sitting up here and we're picking and choosing and we're watching the Kardashians or, you know, Family Feud, I love the Family Feud too, but <laughs> at the same time, it's like, you know, who cares if Kanye drops a new CD when you're looking at the immigration issues? Like, who cares about that kind of stuff when you really look at the core and the essence of what a human being's true job is? It's like, we have to be able to connect to people on every single level. And I've never been to a place where I didn't want to help somebody because I grew up like that. That's the way that my wife grew up and that's the way that I grew up. And so we're always finding ways to connect to people. And we always think like state, national, um, city, globally, how do you connect to people and feel people's voices and you feel people's pain to help them find a way to change? So there's another issue you talk about in the book. You have a chapter called, Without Food, Your Ass is Gonna Die. <laughs> talk about First what of all, food I, Before I talk is. about this chapter, I have to you know, recognize somebody who works for my foundation and all she does is fight food deserts. And Lika, could you stand up real please real fast? Yeah. Yeah. So she's like my voice on that. The first time I ever... We were working together, and I, I brought the issue up of sugar, and I was like, you know sugar stands for slavery. And she was like, oh, okay, now we can talk. And ever since then, we've been really good friends. And hey, she came into my room and did a lesson on I that, I know, and, and so our foundation is, that part of my foundation is based on the food deserts and the lack of you know, nutrition or the lack of uh, access to you know, supermarkets and, and fresh vegetables. I lived in a neighborhood where there, wasn't, there was only one grocery store. You know, you live in a, in a where you live where 20,000 or 60,000 people and people don't have access to fresh food. And, you know, there's 23.8 million people living in food deserts in America. And I think it's something I read something one day. It said 6.8 million of them are kids. To think about that, kids, we all take for granted food. And, you know, to think about there's places where, you know, where I go to Haiti and I'm like, oh, wow, people don't have food. And then I'll go to, to South Dakota with the Sioux tribe and I'm like, well, people don't have food here. You know, I would drive to downtown somewhere in Seattle and there's homeless people who don't have food. It's like, there's so many food deserts and food is a big issue because health is wealth. You know what I'm saying? Health is a part of your growth and there's kids who go to school every single day that they don't even get one meal. And it's the idea that people don't even understand about the food that they're eating and how as an athlete, you are, you are a conduit of, of, of brands and brands come up to you and they offer you large sums of money to speak for them, you know, what do I look like saying that I <laughs> represent McDonald's when that is not the truth? McDonald's is one of the biggest issues in America. Coca-Cola, like these are companies that, that we all share that prey on people that are brown and black every single day. And they put their stuff up, they give us free stuff, and then they give us money to, you know, to merchant, to sell to our people these things that we know that are and bad. You know, we look at the brown or the Samoan culture or the black people in these different, who dealing with these diabetes issues. And it's all stemming from the food, the greasy foods that and it's time for us to stop that. And it's time for athletes to step up and really be the ones who say, we're not representing that anymore. We're about the people. And I think that's what's really important. Yeah. Thank you. So, so let's make white people uncomfortable right now <laughs> no, and, and talk about... I yeah. think that issue of food, is, it should make everybody uncomfortable. The idea that you know, as a human being, as we sit at our table and we break bread and we eat the, you know, salmon, you know, Copper River salmon is really good, oh, you know? Oh, yeah. I just and, had some. And, and 
to think that, you know, there's somebody who doesn't even have a, a piece of bread, you know, let alone breakfast, you know what I'm saying? And, you know, and so, you know, that's a hard thing to fathom. And I think we as people have to continuously fight these issues. I think about, you know, there's an iPhone 10, you know, that could recognize your face, you know, or there's a new car that's about to fly, or this, all these new inventions that people are inventing. And me and my brother are like, damn, we're we, we fucking missing a step if we're making flying cars before we feed people, you know? And it's like... <laughs> no doubt. That's a crazy contradiction. That's a crazy contradiction. Damn it, Steve Jobs, I miss you, but shit. <laughs> I love my iPod, but goddamn, we need to feed the people. I'm with you. Yeah, no, so um, moving to, to, the, to the conversation that I, I think we need to have that we, I haven't seen you have yet on this book tour, um, but the one that I think will definitely help to make people uncomfortable here is about the N-word chapter. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about the difference about if a white person uses it and if a black person uses it, but then you kind of actually apologize to your daughters. Yeah, what's, I think what's, what's that about? it's one of those things like, you have to be able to self-reflect and like before you start to go out and try to be like, well, people, the people should do this. Then you have to like self-reflect on what's your part in this. And, you know, I played a pivotal part in, you know, using the N-word and sharing it in a, in a way that I shouldn't have been sharing it. And so for me, Maya Angelou, you know, reading her words and thinking about how she felt about that and the disconnect between, you know, older black people and younger black people, like what that word means to them, that's a word of, an, you, know, you know, that brings up death. That's a word that brings up, you know, you know, segregation. That's a word that brings up, you know, lack of opportunity. That's a word that brings up slavery. That's a word that brings up pain. And for me, you know, growing up, that was, a, that was an adjective, a pronoun, a verb, you know, <laughs> being able to use that word in different places and make, make a sentence make a sense. And for me, you know, the first thing I want to do is apologize to my ancestors because me having using that word the way that I did is ba basically a slap in their faces. It's a, basically a slap in their journey or what they've been through. It's basically, you know, discrediting what it meant to them to be, to make it through, you know, slavery, to make it through segregation, to make it through Jim Crow, to make it through all these different issues and have that word be on top of their, be on top of their head. I think about that word as the last word that Emmett Till heard. I think about that as the last word, you know, people hanging from the tree, you know, whether, you know, Billie Holiday, you know, and they, you know, singing that song, you know, Strange Fruit, Nina Simone. I'm thinking about those are the words that people was, were, were, that they were hearing before they, they met their last breath. And so for me, that chapter was a very reflective chapter because it was about the growth from that, you know. And what it means for when I think white people said, I think I apologize to my ancestors because I allowed some of my friends who were white to be able to use that word around me in an in a, in a unconscious way, you know, and to be able to not let them to, to be like, look, you know, that word is a word that I shouldn't be using, and your ass should definitely not be using it. <laughs> right. yeah. And if you say it again, I'm a karate chopper, you know? And, but, uh, so that chapter was really hard because that word brings two different things. I feel like for white people, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a truth word. It's, it's where, where, where life was, you know, where, what, what that word mean. It was a word of people who let that word grow and it was a, word of, it was a divide of people who wanted that word to change society. And, and for us, you know, that word means a lot. It brings back the past. 
it brings back where, where we've been and where we need to go. And I think me talking about that word is something that a lot of young black people need to hear and a lot of white people need to hear. They need to understand what that word really means to society and that when you say it, people know it because they know when they say that word to you, you're going to get, you're going to get Aggie, you're going to get angry, you're going you're gonna to become what they want you to become because it's a word that they know that your ancestors, they think that you need to retaliate. But being, being, trying to be yoga and meditating and stuff, it's about bringing that back and making sure that I don't even say that word anymore. So that word has no strength to me anymore. Mm -hmm. I appreciate you. No, I appreciate that perspective because I've heard, I've heard black people lecture younger black people as if that's the only, pr like using that word is why we have problems in our community. Yeah. But the perspective you brought to it um, about the history of that word and instead of just scolding people who use it, like looking at yourself and trying to root it in that history was powerful to me. I, I think, I think you, you have to do that all the time because when you're talking to people, last thing people want to hear is you coming from a place where you feel like you're better than them and you have no past and you have, you just been perfect. And when you are, be, are you, when you're able to reflect on it and unmask yourself and, you know, be able to share your message, people listen. And I think when you talk about a word that's so dehumanizing, you know, it, it has to bring up those type of things. You have to look in the mirror and wonder where you were and how you made that word even more powerful. And now you have to take that word back and put it where it needs to be. And I, I think I remember you telling the story about the first time you, you heard it. Yeah. You were pretty young. Yeah. And I connected with that because I was, I remember I was in preschool. Yeah. Somebody called me that. And I had the exact same experience. I didn't know what it meant, but I knew it was meant at me and not yeah, the yeah. other kids, right? Well, because I grew up with where it was like, that was just a normal word, like, hey, pass the peas. And you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> where are we going? You know, that's my, you know, that like, that was, that was how we talked. And like, and now, and for when I heard that word, I felt like he wasn't coming from that place. I felt like he was coming from a place of anger mm -hmm. and a place of where he wanted me to be a certain way. And so for me, you know, as I got older, I started to understand, you know, you know, it takes time. When I talk to my friends and I'm like, hey, I'm not using that word anymore, they'd be like, what, what word are you going to use then? I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, there's, there's a million words out there. Let's find one. What about duh or the oh, no. bro or, or chicken or something other than that word? My friends, I'm like, bro, we can say something else. And so, like, as you say, if you talk to young people and you change the people one by one and they're sharing that message, it becomes, it becomes like a tree. Everything starts to change. You plant that seed and people start to grow, you know. Right on. Right on. So I want to talk about another phone call I had with you real quick. Um, I called you. You were on the way to the first preseason game. And I said... Did you hear that Marshawn sat for the anthem? Yeah. And um, you said, yeah, you'd heard about that, but you didn't say anything about what you were about to do. Yeah. And so I was wondering, like, did you already know on that bus that you were about to sit for the anthem and, and really shake up this world? And, yeah, and I, then what's I, behind that? I, I think at the time, like, I've been sitting talking to Kaepernick and kind of like, I feel like he, without him being in the NFL, the message was going to be lost and we were, people were going to forget and we were just going to move on and kick that ball and we were going to be like, life is great and everybody has equality. And as you watch in Virginia and you see, you see, you know, you see Charlottesville and you see all these different things that's happening. You see people dying, you see more police brutality, you see so many more issues that you're connected with. You have no choice. You know, I told Coach Carroll, I was like, look, Coach Carroll, like, where, what, 
I've experienced and the people that I've seen and the people that I have represented and the people that I owe, owe, owe this to, I cannot be silent because I owe it to them to have a voice. I owe it to them to share their stories. I owe it to every single person that I have encountered with on my journey to let them know that their story and their voice isn't lost. And, I, and having that conversation with Coach Carroll, he kind of understood because he was like, I can't really tell you not to do what you need to do because I understand where you're coming from. And as a man, I told Coach Carroll, I said, Coach Carroll, it's hard for you to understand what it's like to be a black man in this world. You know, I can put this helmet on every single day, but when I take the helmet off, you know, who knows what can happen to me? Who knows how people feel about me? But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter because I still got to speak for these people and have that voice. And so that was where my mind was as I saw that. And, and I had, and I felt like it was no choice but to sit and make sure that the message doesn't get lost. And I think we had to do a good job of keep talking about it and making sure that, you know, the message doesn't get lost, like I said. Yeah, yeah. What, um... Talk, talk about that message, because, of course, the media uh, tries to paint it and, and Trump tries to paint it as protesting the flag. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there's a lot more to it. I mean, one, one thing to point out is that actually the person that wrote the national anthem was actually celebrating slavery in a verse that we don't sing anymore. But if you go Google it, you will find the verse that celebrates the killing of black slaves. Yeah. No, I think I think for me is when it comes to Trump in that situation. To me, is more like propaganda. I think propaganda does something to people's mind. If you look at World War II, like the propaganda made people feel like murdering and exterminating Jewish people was okay because they seen enough propaganda that they started to believe it. You know, with slavery, they seen enough propaganda that they felt like it was okay. And I think for us. People started having propaganda and trying to divide the message what we were really talking about. Their true message was equality and freedom for every single person on this planet. And I think people lost that. And I think that's the most American thing that you can do is fight for equality for other people regardless of how they look like. So you have another chapter in the book called A Moment of Silence. Yeah. And I think that connects to, to why you sat for the anthem this yeah. year. And it was one of the most powerful chapters to me, man. What, um, talk about what you did with that chapter. I think I was, you know, I was talking to one of my friends who's one of my closest friends, his name uh, Cyril, and I was talking to him. I was like, bro, I, this, I just need to put something in there that's not really in my opinion or really my thoughts on it. It needs to be something that's like, really true and I was like I think I'm gonna do this and he was like that's the one you know do that you know and so it was like to put a chapter in there that had no voice and no my opinion it was just pure facts it was pure facts that police brutality isn't a black issue or a brown issue it's just a human being issue there's people of all colors who have been struck by a tragedy because of the police officers or police brutality, certain, certain people. I don't believe that every single police officer is bad. That's, for me, if you think that, then, then, you being, then you're just being silly to think that every single person is representing that. But what, what I was trying to say is that there are a lot of people who dehumanize people and don't see people that have value. And for me, that's what that chapter was about. It was showing that these names are people that get mixed, missed, you know, these are true people, people who lost their life for no apparent reason, who were unarmed and didn't have anything to do with the way that they died, you know. And it was the fact that I wanted people to go research those stories. 
I wanted people to go find out what their families felt. I wanted people not to be divided on the issue of was it right or was it wrong? I wanted people to bring it back to human. The human level of it is that everybody, when a person is murdered or a person dies, they're leaving somebody behind. They're leaving kids behind. They're leaving it. You know, as I went to the memorial of Charlene Lowes yesterday, I didn't, see, I didn't see tons of people. I saw her family. I saw families. There was, when it was on TV, it was people who were divided. Oh, this, this. But yesterday, I saw family. I saw kids who were hurt. I saw grandmothers who were hurt. I saw cousins. I saw people who really felt that. And for me, that's what that chapter was about. It was about reconnecting to those families who have lost those voices. We talk those people's name, and we forget that they were, they were somebody. They were mothers. They were fathers. They were brothers. They were sisters. They were you know, teammates. They were somebody that had a voice that lost it. And I think that's what it really boils down to is really coming back to the essence and being like, oh, a person died. You know, we have been so, you know, we be so desensitized to death that we don't even see death as an issue anymore. We just see it as a part of life and we just be like, oh, somebody died. Like, you know, what happened? Like, you no, know, nobody digs into what, what Anthony Bourdain was going through, why somebody that was so successful takes their own life or what is Junior Seas feeling when he decides to take his life or what is Kate Spade feeling? We don't never dig into that. We just see it. We go to Burger King or McDonald's, and then we move on with our day. We don't ever try to connect to the families and say, hey, what's, what's the son feeling? What's the mother feeling like? And I think that's what that chapter was really about, was bringing, giving those people, making those people human again. No doubt. If you haven't seen it yet, that chapter just lists the names of every single person last year who was unarmed and was killed by police, and just listing their names. Um, and it's powerful because it's disproportionately black and brown, but there's also a lot of white people also in that chapter, it's too. There's tons of white people, Asian people. It's just humans. Yeah. And, like, at that point, I'm not even looking at color. I'm just looking at humans. I'm just yeah. seeing human being, 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 human being. I'm not looking at, oh, is he black or is he white or is he Chinese or is he this or is he that? I'm just looking at, like, that's a person. That's a person. That's a person. That's a person. I should feel pain for that person. I should feel pain for their families. I mean, and that, that gets me to really what was the most scariest phone call yeah. that, that we had. When, when you called me at 3 in the morning, yeah. I knew it wasn't good. Um, when you, thankfully, your name wasn't added to that, yeah. to that chapter. Yeah. But, oh, man, that was hard. No, that was a hard thing because it's, like I said, people, you live in the public eye, so people want to make their decisions or whether, oh, did he deserve it or, oh, he shouldn't have been there. But at the end of the day, nobody was connected to my kids. Like, who, for me at that moment, I'm thinking about my wife. I'm thinking about my son. I mean, thinking about my daughters. I'm thinking about my brother. I'm thinking about my mom. I'm thinking about my dad. I'm not thinking whether, you know, should he do it or should he not. I'm just thinking about, like, the family, what my kids are going to do if they lose their father. And I'm thinking people didn't connect to that. People wanted to connect to because it's such a polarizing issue that nobody ever wants to reflect on it. Nobody wants to look in the mirror and be like, there is an issue. It's not to, it's not to everybody starts to look at it and being like, at the end of the day, is he a human or not? Does he have family? And so for me, that's what really that was about. Yeah. I mean, when, when you told me that an officer had put a weapon to your head and threatened your life, all I could think about is losing a friend yeah. and what Seattle was going to lose and, and what, our, what our movements internationally were going to lose that we're struggling for justice and had just found this new, this new voice and it was overwhelming. I mean, we were upset, crying. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. everybody was upset, but you know, 
those kind of traumatic issues, they shape you and, and they try to, you know, those experiences or those examples or something that you, it makes you want to have a voice. It makes you want to be able to share your story because uh, there's a whole bunch of people who didn't, didn't, that doesn't have a voice who, who passed away that, that can't speak for themselves or, or people who don't know the story. I think my story just brings the other people into, okay, let's really look at the underlying issues in America. Let's really find out what's going on and how can we solve these problems. No doubt. Well, I'm so glad you're with us, and I want you to talk a little bit about what you think the role of an athlete is in social movements. I think the role of an athlete is a very, it's a very tricky subject because people see athletes and they think that athletes should be grateful. You made it. Shut up. Be quiet. Run that ball. Dunk it. Jump over that hurdle. Do what you can. I need to be entertained today. It's Sunday, 1 o'clock. I had a long-ass week, and the Seahawks need to win. And maybe I'll, you know, I'll do something after. So athletes, you know, it's, you're dealing with brands, you're dealing with your team, you're dealing with the fans, and you have to make a conscious choice of what is it that really matters? Is it the wins? The wins do matter in a certain place, but, or is it your humanity? You're challenging your humanity versus morals and, and, and the ethics of money and all these different things, and you have to make a choice of, like, what am I supposed to do? I have great leadership and great people before me who've done the things that they're supposed to do when they, had, when, they, when they were athletes and they had a voice, whether it was John or Dr. Harry Edwards or whether it was Muhammad or Craig Hodges, whoever it was, Kaepernick, whoever it was, there's so many great examples. And now I live in a generation where I've been, you know, where, I've, where we got LeBron James, an athlete who has everything to lose but still is able to speak on social issues in a way that hasn't been done before. And I think with his leadership, it allows us to be able to speak and have a voice. I think that's something that you know, we really have to share. And I think we play a, a, a big role because we are people, people look up to us. You know, we are real role models, but our role model doesn't stop at shoe brands. Our role model doesn't stop with fast food or selling these different products. Our role model really starts at the really the core of what it really, what it really is, you know, where we can't be silent you know, about real issues. That is really what a role model is. That is really what we're supposed to be doing when we get up there on that platform. Of course, we're supposed to make the, make score the touchdowns, you know, do the dunks, but at the same time, we're also supposed to speak for the people who don't have a voice. And every single athlete knows that is whether or not we choose to do it or not, and whether we are able to walk amongst fear and make sure that you know what people write about us doesn't bother us or the brands that we lose. Because when you talk about stuff like that, you lose brands. That's just peer. That's just peer economics. You know, people don't want to choose between right or wrong. You know, what I mean, they want to choose what they think is going to sell. Business is about bottom line. It's not about the exits. If that was the case, Shell Oil would not be in the Amazon leaving residue behind or people drilling oil on Native American lands, or Flint, Michigan, oil, or the issues with gun violence wouldn't be an issue because people would be like, you know, at the end of the day, that is right. Like, we, kids should be safe at school, you know? And so for me, that's really what athletes have a voice is that we can share. We're the only people who are able to have a billion people at one time through Instagram and Twitter, and we share things about things that we're doing, but we never share about issues that are affecting our humanity and our, and our communities. No doubt. No doubt, and right on. I'm, I'm glad you said the names of, of John Carlos and Muhammad Ali, and we've had some incredible sports figures from throughout history who have jumped all the way into social movements and helped amplify them and been a big part of it. But one thing that you write about in the book is how what's missing was like an organization, like coming together in collective struggle. 
You know, with, I just wanted to write about an organization that was kind of like, you know, like the Red Cross or an organization that represents athletes, that athletes have voices around the whole world. Because there's an athlete who plays soccer for, that's from Senegal that plays for France, who's seeing all these issues in, in, in Senegal and he needs the people to support him on those issues or, or you know, um, Maya Moore or, you know, all these different athletes who are dealing with issues or the trans and transgender issues that are happening within the women's sports or men's. I was in, um, you know, in New Zealand and watching you know, the uh, Commonwealth Games and there was an issue there and to be able to have a collective voice of athletes around the world to really show what we really are truly about and the humanity and that if we had created an organization, people won't be scared to share their feelings because they'll have support, you know, they'll have Ronaldo, they'll have Messi, they'll have people who are dealing with things that you know we can share and share our message and share our struggles and you know and unmask ourselves to really show who we are as human beings. Yeah, that sounds good to me. And I mean we've been talking about that idea for a while and then jumping into working with athletes for impact has been amazing and I, I hope it takes off and a lot of other athletes get on board because I think that power could could really transform not only the sports world but but the the whole world. Yeah, true story, no doubt. Um, I want to begin to wrap up here, but there's you look good tonight, and I'm wondering. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I was unsure. <laughs> um, did you get that from Africa? Yeah, I just got back from Africa and, and yeah. Senegal, and um, for me, like. That was like a really inspiring trip. It was a very transformational trip. It was, it was everything that I needed at the time of my life. As my friends text me, I'm like, man, I'm having such a great time. But it was a very reflective, it was a very reflective uh, trip because like me being African-American and not having a connection to Africa, but not really having a connection to, you know, the history of America because the history of an African-American person in, in America starts with the trans, transatlantic slave, and it trans, starts with post-colonialism. It starts with neo, neo, it starts with colonialism for us. And for us, you know, that's hard to do, but that's a hard past to see a brighter future when you look at it and you think about the, only the heart and the, and the pain that people felt, never talking about the true, true, true journey of, of, of the African African slave or the African American, you know, and so for me, going back to Africa was was that connection. It was the connection to the past, and it was connection to who I am as a person. Because my ancestors are Mandinka; they are true warriors. So, for the essence, I'm already already built for to, for a warrior because I am a Mandinka. You know what I'm saying? For so you know, so for me, that journey was a, a true journey because every night was a reflective night. You know, I'm not. You know, I'm not scared to admit that every night was an emotional night for me because it was, you know, I cried with my wife on multiple occasions on that night, you know, for us to sit there and be there and think about, you know, like, dang, like, my grandmother left this place 400 years ago, and I'm the first person to actually bring her spirit back or bring her, her essence back, you know, to think about, you know, as a father, I lose, if I lose my daughter in a safe way, I, I go crazy. I'm like, where is she? Where is she? You know, where, where is she? And to think that my grandfather... He lost his daughter and never ever saw her again. You know that's a that's a painful, that's a painful thing to deal with. A, a very reflective thing. You know, you know I dealt with that in a, in a 
in a, with rage. I dealt with that with calmness. I dealt with that with patience. I dealt, dealt with that with elegance. You know what I mean? At the same time was to be able to, you know, understand and be able to feel that, you know, to walk into the house of slaves and, you know, and think about all these people at the bottom of this, this building being treated like animals. As people watch, you know, women and mothers, I mean, mothers and child getting torn apart. Fathers being just three feet away from their, their child, hearing their child yell, but to be helpless, you know, to be helpless and not be able to change what is happening to your child as they're being chained, you know, as they're being sold, as they're being prodded, as they're being fed to be sold like cattle. That's a very reflective thing for a human to deal with. That's, that is one of the most hardest things I've ever had to deal with because that is the truth. That is not a, a that is not fake, that's not fictional, these are facts. These are facts, the chains of my ancestors are still there. You know, the history is still there. I look at the, the point of no return, an empty hole, a hallway, people being drugged from their family as they scream and nails stuck into walls as they crawl and they try not to be sold, they try not to be pulled from their child and thrown on a boat, never to realize what has ever happened to their, their family or their children or their husband only to be feel like lost and rather take their lives and just jump over the older, or at the end of the boat than rather to be slaves. And for that, at the same time, that's what the bottom looks like. The bottom looks like that. The bottom looks like that, but at the top, it's very comfortable. There's a white guy up there who has a plush living room, like a Manhattan, New York apartment, you know, you know, with, you know, all the, all the fine things, a nice view of the ocean in Senegal, because Senegal is on the ocean. And, you know, uh, a plush bathroom and as many concubines as he wanted, as he as people rape and pill as they rape the women every single day. A woman had to deal with that. So it's not just dealing with the, the essence of, you know, slavery and oppression. It's also dealing with women's issues as a woman's right. body is being controlled and she has no way of being free because that man holds the keys to her life. It's either death or sex. So what do you think she's going to have to do? Some women took their life. Others dealt with sex. And so for that, that's a hard thing to deal with. And every single night, that was a passionate and emotional thing as I, as I sit under the moonlight and it's beautiful as the stars are bouncing off the ocean and the moon is as bright as a, as a New York City and Times Square, the moon is coming bouncing off the ocean. And I'm very reflective, you know, as I sit there in calmness and I, and I pray and I think about the water going back and forth and what it feels like at night. Uh, as my ancestors on that boat every night hearing this water and, and calling out and singing spiritual songs that, you know, reflective of who they are as Mandinkas and who they are as Fulani and Jolof people, if they're singing and not being able to speak the same dialect and knowing that they can never, ever be back. That is, that is, you know, that is a journey that not everybody can take. You know, that is a journey that I cannot take alone. I had to go with my wife. I could have never done that alone if I didn't have a strong woman who was able to let me be emotional, who was able to be emotional and to be understanding. Not like, oh, don't do that, but to listen, you know. And I think that is what I took from that trip is the pain and the anguish of things that I won't let happen again, things that I know that shouldn't happen again, and to be able to share this story with other young black people who can take this journey for them, but other um, Caucasian people so they can hear the pain of what that feels like when you're in there and you hear chains popping and you see what, you know, you know, what it is to be confined, you know, and what it is for a person not to eat, but to be funneled, to be funneled food through their mouth so they can be healthy enough to sell. You know, those things are hard things to deal with, you know. And then while you're in Africa 
you know, there's some emotional times for me there, but the young girls who I felt that one of my schools that we deal with with computer science and techno technology that we dealt with with kids, you know, we sat around tables with young women um, that are, are powerful. They're, they're some of the most powerful, young, confident women I've ever seen in my life. They're dealing with things that, you know, we can never deal with. We get mad when we're in traffic and we can't, goddamn Uber's taking too long. You know, we get mad when we at Chick-fil-A and they run out of Chick-fil-A sauce. Like, I love Chick-fil-A sauce too. <laughs> but when you're at Chick-fil-A and they run out of Chick-fil-A sauce and they got no more Polynesian sauce, you get mad, you know. And these women are dealing with, these young girls are dealing with real life issues. As we sit there and we talk to these young girls, me and my wife, we sit back and we listen. Obviously, we don't speak the language, and so we talk to our translator and we say, hey, what, what do you kids want to be? And every single kid said something that I never thought I hear kids say. I heard one girl say, she said, I want to be, uh, be a police officer. I asked her why. She said, because I want to stop the rapes. I want to stop people from getting raped. I saw one girl, she was like, I want to be a doctor. My mom died from my mom died from in the hospital because we had no way of getting in, getting her into the room. So people in, in Senegal die every single day because they don't have a waiting room and they pick and choose who they want or they don't have IV. I want to be an IV technician so people don't die and they can get their IVs. Or I want to be I, I want to stop cancer so because we don't have any we don't have any cancer centers here. I want people to stop dying for HIV. It's like those are the things that kids that are going through something are thinking about. They're not thinking about when I'm gonna get my latest iPad or when it's something like that. You know, when somebody tells you something so powerful, like, I'm so poor, I can't even hope no more. You know, that's, hope is the last thing that we all hold on to. Hope is the thing that, what gets us through so many situations as people is hope. It's the idea that there could be a better day. But when somebody tells you, I don't even have hope no more. Because I, I, I want to come to school and eat, but I don't have food. You know what I mean? I want to be great, but there is no opportunity. And for me, that's what that trip was about. It was about realizing that you know there's issues around this world that that people that don't have a voice and my job and my wife's job is to continuously build bridges and help people go through things and help them find solutions and that's what that trip was about it was about making amends for my ancestors and letting them rest and it was also about going home and doing the work that needs to be done for my people and i think that's what it was that trip was about Thank you so much. Um, no, I mean, I was so glad to hear that you were going to Africa and that you were going to come back. And I feel like there's a new glow that yeah. you have knowing where you come from. Yeah. And I can't wait to see what you do with it. Yeah. You know, I just, like I said, it's just, a, it's a very challenging thing too because you have to, you, you make promises to kids. I made promises to people. I made promises to people that I was going to bring food back. I made promises that I was going to help them get water. I made promises to women who, in this one particular village where one of the tribes is that, I, that I'm from, um, the tribal leader is very different. The chief, he is a, he's a very, he's a different kind of chief. And, and a lot of times, you know, women don't have a voice. This is the first, one of the first chiefs who gave women land. He told the women, do what you want to do, make money and do what you can for the kids. So these women wake up every single day and we had to help them pull the well, the water. I'm talking about the water got to be at least 
500 feet under the earth and we have to pull up the water like and that's you know that takes a whole day to to get the to water the vegetables so they have enough to sell and the car so they can build schools for their kids because their kids don't have school they don't have teachers but they want to be able to do that so for me those promises that I made to those people are things that I can't let them down about so that is just another you know journey for me and my family to make sure that we keep our promises and it's good that you make promises to people because those people keep us honest you know what I'm saying so for and so for me and my wife we just want to make sure that we do what we can to help you know society in a positive way I'll be there right next to you helping out however I can hey everybody Michael Bennett thank you thank you, thank you. Hi. Uh, so uh, this is your last chance to uh, pull some cards together. We'll be circulating through, and I'm going to ask as many questions as I can get to, um, and then we'll give you all a chance to meet Michael out in the other room. Uh, it's really hard to ask um, a fun, ice-breaky starter question after that, Michael. I just got to be honest. Okay, okay. So is it all right if I yeah. keep it real for a little while longer and then... Um, uh, this just was handed to me. Following the ridiculous directive for NFL players to stand for the anthem or not to be on the field, what's the chance that all players may stay inside when next season opens or more likely that they will choose another method of expression? You just said, I'm going to ask a fun question. I thought you were going to like, what's your favorite color? Do you want to go Disney World? No, uh, I like, can't go there yet. <laughs> like, so that's not even fun. That's like, that's like a real question. Like, look, I can't go to fun yet. I, I mean, I always just like, it's a very, it's a new issue. It's like, it doesn't, we have to have no time to reflect on what should, what should we do? How should we, you know, you know, talk about these issues? But for us, I think at the core of it, I think for us is really about community. It's really about how can we take these organizations and these teams and hold them accountable for the things that they do within the community and making sure that they give back to every single neighborhood. Because like I said this before, like the people in the east like Seattle, Seahawks, the west, the north, the south, everybody wants to be a part of the Seattle Seahawks. So the Seattle Seahawks owe it to every community to make sure that every community has a voice. And I think that's what we really are trying to do within this, this, the context of what we're trying to do within the policy of the new NFL is to try to make sure that the NFL represents all the people that love their team. You know, the brown people need a voice, the women need a voice, the black people need a voice, the Asian people need a voice. Everybody needs a voice when it comes to this. And we also owe it to if kids don't have books in their school or if you look at rent to issue when there's no lunch or something that we should be the team who steps up and make sure that all kids in Seattle eat not just you know just serving in the, on Sundays we deserve to serve every single day to Seattle when we play for the city would sports be any different if there were more black owners I don't know if sports would be different I think I think at the end of the day it's just about human interaction I think it's not really about sports when I look at the world. I really look at the world as, as, as a global citizen. I look at the world as a, as a way of what is it to take to humans to realize that another human matters. That's at the end of everything is how do we look in the mirror and find a way to be like, this person matters regardless of their color, their religion. I put that past everything, you know. Like, you know, the Dalai Lama always says, like, secular ethics, like, you know, 
people before religion, people before democratic, people before people before Seattle or the 49ers, although I love the Seattle Seahawks, but you know, people on the 49ers are still people, and it's like, when do we come back to that? <laughs> when do we come back to the, to the core of everything and realizing that at the end of the day, it's our obligation as other human beings to recognize when another human being is going through something and that we have a choice and making sure that it doesn't happen to them. So I have to interject my own, because I want to get to people, other people's questions. I have to say this to you. There's a quote that's incredibly inspiring to me that I don't have memorized. But it basically says that the role of the artist in the world is to make it impossible for somebody to stand in front of a mirror in the morning and shave without thinking about all the other people around them in the world who are suffering profoundly. That, that an artist will have done their work when, they're, when a person is not able to function in their day without acknowledging and trying to do something in their day to serve other people who don't have what they have. I feel like you have reinvented the role. I just need to say this, y'all. You have reinvented the role of an, act, of an athlete. <laughs> To be able to do that, the profound message of empathy that you bring through your work is like nothing I've ever heard before. It's a whole different idea of heroism. You're thank you, man. So I appreciate that. So thank you. I've got that off my chest. Thank you, man. That's, I'm, really, I'm honored that you feel that way, man. Well, uh, I do. What do you think your children's biggest challenge is going to be? I think my children's biggest challenge is as young women to find their roles in society to, in a way that they can be positive you know, change makers. I talk to my daughters about change making. I, I, I live, me and my wife live in a place, we live in our, our mind is like, how can we make our kids reflective on society? How can they not, they've been blessed with much, but they cannot forget about where they came from or they can't forget about other people. So we take our kids through this journey of like, you know, change, this journey of visiting places that they would never visit on their summer break or going to native reservations or visiting homeless shelter or visiting, trying to visit people in prison or, you know, going to different things because I think it's really important that that's my daughter's biggest challenge is empathy because they live in a world that lacks empathy. They live in a world that lacks compassion. So that's the biggest challenge that we all deal with is like, how do we have empathy for people how do we have compassion when that is not an everyday thing? The everyday thing is to post about oneself. The everyday thing is to post about how I feel. It's never about the other world. The Facebook is just me, 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 me. To live in a world where it's only me, 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 and now I can only think about what it's going to be like in 10 years, they might make up a new word for me. <laughs> uh, this was the fun question. What's Martellus up to these days? Uh, Martellus, my brother, he's, 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 he's the one he's always been. He's always been a creative being. And he's always been trapped, a creative trap in a large body, you know. <laughs> he's, he's a giant. He's, tra he's trapped in that body. But I feel like this is the first time that he's at peace. It's the first time that, you know, for me, Dylan, for me, my brother, I told my, because I was telling my wife this, and I was like, man, I want my brother to play another year. And she was like, you, you no, you sound like everybody else. Like, let him <laughs> go into where he wants to go. Let him be a human. Don't tell him that this is the only way that he can identify with himself. This is his only value. And I think that was the journey for myself to come with my own, you know, acceptance of him retiring because our relationship has been so, um, so Sim, we've been so tied together our whole life that our relationship is like no other, you know, like my brother is like my best friend. So it's like, when he retired, I feel like, damn, I need to retire. Like, you know, like, <laughs> I have nobody to talk to about sports. 
And so, like, so now he's just in a place where he's just really peaceful. He's journeying through his creativity. He's moving. He's doing so many things for the community through creativity, creating new books, creating so many different things, you know, and, and Kaz doing things, working with Hulu, working with Facebook, and doing his dream. And I think that's the best thing he ever did because everybody always told him what his dream was. His dream should be dunking the ball in the NBA or catching touchdowns. And I was very lucky for him to see him write his own story. He, ran, he even wrote his own, he wrote the funniest uh, I know, re retirement statement. Every other, re every other retirement statement is like, I love football. Football has been the greatest thing for me. You know, he, he quoted Walt Disney. He quoted Martin Luther King. He quoted, he quoted, you know, so many different, you know, people, Steve Jobs. So that was like him. He just kind of ran away in a funny, creative way. And that's my brother in a nutshell. And I think now he's, he can truly be his full self now, not having, you know, teams and people telling him how he can think and when he can think and what he can do. He just does what he wants to do. And I think that's the most beautiful thing about it. Amen. Isn't he rapping now, too? He does, he does everything. <laughs> he does rap. He does music. He does everything. He's just creative, man. He just wants to be, you know, he wants to tap into that side of himself. You talk in your book about increasing opportunities for women within the NFL. Do you think there's something the league will, this is something the league will work towards, and how do you think it could be achieved? Um, I think it's just like, I mean, I think the NFL has played a, you know, it took us for Ray Rice to realize that domestic abuse is a big issue in, in, in the NFL. So I think it, it's going to take us, a, you know, 10 or 15 year or two years to realize that women can be an important part. They could be general managers. They could be players. They could be whatever they want to be. So I don't know how we get there, but I think it's the women and, and the men, you know, voicing their opinions. You know, when you see a woman, a woman ref out there, you're like, yeah, we're making progress, you know. Or you see a woman coaching in the NBA, you're like, yeah, we're making progress. And I think that, you know, for you know, for us to have our true voice, it needs to be able to, for women to have their voice and be reflective about where their place is in, in the sports industry and to be able to continuously have a voice. So the NFL has a lot of work to do, and I think we have a lot of players who are willing to, you know, step up and do the work so everybody can have that fair shot, fair shot at what they really love. I'm sorry for all the ricocheting around, but you've proven you can go kind of anywhere the questions take you. So uh, how has your faith helped you in times of persecution? What's your reaction to, and follow up. What's your reaction to the Bible being twisted to support the current child separation issue at the border? Uh, like I said, <laughs> that's a real hard question. But like I said, it's propaganda. You know, people are going to, the people want to find a way to make what, the, what they're doing feel good, you know. And for us, it's not really about, the Bible doesn't have to tell us that what is happening is wrong. We see it with our eyes when you look and you see stuff like that. It doesn't take a book to recognize that. I think... I think that's, I think that's kind of like, I think that's a cop-out to be like, oh, it's telling us to do that. No, you know, it doesn't tell us to do that. It tells us to, you know, we're going to be judged on how we treat the poor and the unfortunate. And if that's the case, we're being judged really poor right now. We're like Mariah Carey on uh, New York City, you know, Times Square. <laughs> I, love, I love Mariah Carey, though. We did, we are, if, if we're being judged on how we treat the poor right now and the unfortunate, then we have a, we're, I, don't, I don't know what to tell you because it doesn't look like, you know, we're going anywhere good from here. You mentioned both the brotherhood on football teams and black, black athlete activism, but there are no large examples of white athletes being activists for civil rights or BLM. I think, I about, think that's wrong. All right, let's hear it. I think Chris Long is a guy that I work with. And, and Chris Long... 
he's one of my good friends, and I talk to him all the time. I think he, he is like one of the main people, whether it's building you know, water wells in Tanzania or donating money to educational system or standing up to Donald Trump. Chris Long, he's, like, he's, like, he's one of the people who really understands. And, and to me, the thing that makes it really, 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 truly uh, amazing is that he comes from a place where he doesn't have to speak. You know, he doesn't have to do this. <laughs> but because he has empathy and compassion for people, Chris always steps up. Hoshka, Stephen Hoshka is a great prayer example. Justin Britt, there's so many great examples, you know, of people who are stepping up. And it, could we have more? Could we use a Tom Brady? Of course we could. But. We'll just let that hang in the air for a moment. What's your best advice for teachers, she says specifically white women, who teach a diverse student population? I think, the, I think for that question is to listen. I think a teacher or a person has to listen to the stories and the journeys of their class. I think a lot of times teachers want to, want to tell, you know, they want to personify their own story and what they've been through. When I was little, I walked to school and we, no, we can't do that anymore. Some of these kids, you know, they're living in broken homes. Some kids are homeless. Some kids are going through stuff and the teacher has to be able to have empathy and compassion and to be able to listen to them. And I think that's what a teacher could do. She could find out what's really happening because people really change when you really get into their stories and you ask them, why? What's going on to you? Why didn't you eat? And then they can have a voice and kids are more likely to tell you what's going on and then you can have a better outcome for their schoolwork. That's right. Um, people also are, get Jesse's book. Read Jesse's book. To teaching Black Lives at School. Respect. It's a very informative book because people will think that it says teaching Black Lives at School that is only about Black Lives, but in that book, it's really about every single issue: um, homophobia, Islam, uh, Islamophobia. It's about all kinds of phobias that people are dealing with, or kids are dealing with, and it's a way for teachers to look at the book and talk to the kids about the stories of their journey of Native people, the stories of you know what, what it is to be Black Lives Matter. And it kind of um, takes the 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 stigmas off of it for people to be able to have an understanding of it. Yeah, teachingforblacklives.org. All right. Thank you, Michael. We'll push it out tomorrow on our, um, on our uh, Facebook thread, feed, whatever we do on Facebook. Um, I got like four more. What is the responsibility of white people as we are called upon to help end racism? Ooh. That's a big one. Responsibility. I think, I think it's, it's, it's not the, the people who have been from privilege or the, some of the oppressors to tell the oppressees when they should protest or when they should talk or when they should do this and how they should do it. It's more about people listening and trying to not put themselves in the story and being like, well, that's not true. It's about like, okay, so what is your journey? And I think it just takes a lot of empathy and I wanna, don't want to keep saying empathy and compassion, but it's the truth it's for white people to really understand the history of what really happened, what it really feels like for black people to live in America, what it feels like for somebody to be judged on the color of their skin and not the content of their character. You know, white people are given the benefit of doubt when they first being met. We're not given that benefit of doubt. And I think white people really have to take hold of that and understand that if they really want to stop racism and stop oppression, then they have to be the voices of the people and be able to say, like, I heard it and I need to speak the truth. Thank you. Okay, and this comes from a nine-year-old boy. What can I do as a nine-year-old white boy to make people of color's lives better? 
Man, just touch one person's life every day. As a nine-year-old boy, I wouldn't tell you that your job is to fight oppression. Your job is to be a young child and live your life, but live your life in a way that, you know, you have empathy and compassion from the beginning to the end. I don't even kill ants anymore, you know, because I have compassion for ants. And my <laughs> wife is really like, you need to kill that roach. But I'm like, no, let him free. Let him free, you know. Like, that's really how, you know, we got to live. You got to start like that, you know. And for a nine-year-old boy, I would just say, hey, man, just have empathy for other people. Try to be understanding and don't be so judgmental. And go into situations without any expectations, you know. Go into situations, you know, not assuming, but being able to listen and to understand. I screwed those up because that was supposed to be the last question. But I've got two more that are indicative of a whole other strain of questions was, uh, that, are indi that indicate how much people care about you. And they are. Uh, how do you prevent yourself from becoming overwhelmed with all the shitty stuff in our world and in our past? How do you yourself? I think, I think you know, one of my favorite monks, a Buddhist monk, he said, he said, you must realize that there's sorrow, but you almost realize, you must realize that there's sun. And so every day you got to realize that there's sorrows in the world, but there also is joy in the world. And so for finding balance in that world of finding like that there's so many things that happen, but at the same time, I get to look at my children, I get to look at the great things, the work that people are doing, and finding great balance in that. It's a very, it's a very thin line to walk on because there's so much shit happening that it's hard to find joy, but we must find joy to really dig deep in ourselves and find our true purpose because if we let the world decide what our purpose is, we'll never reach our full joy, and I think that's what we have to do. And finally, what are you doing to take care of your brain? My brain? Yeah, your brain. Uh, I can't say it without getting suspended, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Jesse Hagopian and Michael Bennett.